Welcome to this Reformation and Revival video. Today, uh, I have a special guest with me, a good friend of mine named Tymon Klein. And we're going to analyze the recent Meet the Press interview. Uh, they came out here and visited Moscow, and then they um, did a piece on church and state. And as I watched it, Tymon, I thought, I've got to have my friend Tymon on. We've got to talk, because I was sitting there listening to the panel, and I said, Tymon would have something to say about this. Tymon is a prolific author. He writes all over the place. Uh, he is an attorney. He lives in Philadelphia. Uh, he has graduated Rutgers Law. He has graduated Westminster Theological Seminary, and we should have some fun today considering what Meet the Press uh, thinks about Moscow and, of course, uh, um, Christianity and America. So here we go. Let's start with clip number one. The Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, the nation's fifth most populous state, said this to his supporters. So much for this, this myth of separation of church and state. That's right. And here's that's the same position that Michael Perutka, the Republican nominee for Maryland Attorney General, he's, it's a position he's taken since at least 2014 when he called the separation of church and state, quote, the great lie. And he added, there can be no separation of God from government because he, capital H there, created it. That would have been news to the founders, especially Thomas Jefferson, who was the first of the founders to use the phrase, the wall of separation metaphor, to describe the First Amendment's religious freedom protections. Other Republicans, though, are openly embracing Christian nationalism. There can be no separation of God and government. And uh, Chuck says that would be news to the founders. Tom, is that, is that how you understand things? No, me, me and Chuck read different history books, obviously. So, yeah, the, I mean, there's so, there's so many issues when you get into debate over this point because i think the terms become a little a little squishy and misused so that on the one hand we're talking about church and state two institutions on the other hand you might just say religion and politics and those are different relations and different things uh, at different degrees of abstraction so you know first of all he's chuck is even denying the uh, more abstract point of just god and government or just god and politics and that this would be news to the founders that, uh, you know, any religion has anything to do with the public sphere or with politics, however he would say it. Um, that one, you know, is, is probably the easiest to refute. Um, the, the amount of reference to, um, you know, some, for, some form of name for God throughout the, so many of the founding documents. I mean, it's, you would, we'd spend the rest of the time trying to line them up. Um, it, almost every state constitution, if not every state constitution at the founding, period mentions God, uh, whether in the preamble or there are articles of uh, or declarations of rights, those sorts of things, um, and, you know, dedicate their their governments, the state governments, to um, the Almighty, to God, to the, the Creator, all, so on and so forth. Um, and then we can even move down the line to the, this question of establishment of, of church and state, what their relation is supposed to be. And, uh, you know, you have but there's 13 colonies, obviously, at the beginning, some level of establishment in most of them, depending on uh, their particular history. So you would have somewhere like South Carolina that clearly establishes just a sort of generic or mere Protestantism uh, at the beginning. And they put this in their in their first constitution and uh, reserve certain civil rights and certainly participation in government to Protestants, confessing Protestants. You have other states that are a little looser, um, like maybe a Delaware or, or a New Jersey that um, simply recognize Christianity, but still limit it uh, to that. And even New Jersey limits limits it to Protestantism in some regards, or maybe somewhere like Maryland, where you've got a Catholic aristocracy ruling over a population of predominantly Protestants. So it's just general Christianity. And then, of course, you have somewhere like Connecticut or Massachusetts that literally still have established churches at the time. And none of this was news to the founders. They weren't unaware of this when they're setting up the structure of the, the federal government. And what something like the Establishment Clause initially does is to preserve or protect from federal encroachment the state establishments. So this, this is, is literally the whole project. It's the whole structure at the, at the beginning. Um, and none of this would have been news to the founders, even if it is to Chuck Todd. So um, eight of the 13 colonies, we're seeing some form of establishment. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, as you mentioned, Chuck first says separation of God and government. And of course, you're going to say, well, if you're going to separate god from government who who is going to be in charge of government and you're dealing with 
Um, the only other option would be man, which is that that very premise is just laced throughout the analysis of this panel on Meet the Press. Uh, one of the things I hope comes about as we view these clips is they're really thinking in a way that there is no God over the state whatsoever. There is there is no God in this particular sphere. But you end up with a Vox Populi, Vox Dei kind of situation. The voice of the people become the voice of God, and you actually do end up with with real tyranny. One of the things that um, one of the things that Doug mentioned in passing didn't make it into the actual um, report from Meet the Press. But one of the things he was asked by um, his interviewer was, "If if this does become a Christian town, then you know what's it going to be like." And he said, well, it will be far more tolerant than the town is now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, like what? I mean, people think this theocracy idea, like, oh, if, if, if it turns into a Christian town, if it turns into a Christian state, then it's going to be oppressive. Um, well, no, because there is actually a God of the system who is not man. Uh, and he's telling he's, he's the one who's governing and regulating. Yeah, you actually actually have a basis for law at all. Right to be to have some kind of transcendent referent undergirding your laws, and you have to um, do justice to the to the the wherever power originates. You have to you have to recognize it, and so whatever the basis of the power of your regime is, the regime, if it's coherent, should recognize it. And if we say it's from God, there's obviously recognition of God. If it's not from God and it's just the people, then it's going to be recognition of man. Uh, that undergirds your system, and as you've already already said, that leads to many of the problems we have have now. So you you know at the founding period, the recognition of of God is ubiquitous. There's no one at the time that would have um, disagreed with the the statement that that government is originating at least in the deity, at least in um, some God. It's not in ourselves, even if the people are the sort of the conduit through which power is disseminated. Um, it's not the the origination of it, nor is it the the basis of law. So these are just you know these were basic unquestioned premises, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And the the other thing, you know, we we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but the entire framing of of Chuck Todd's new series, the rise of theocracy, I guess, you know, is is such a such a typical move from from the left when they encounter Christians that are politically active or politically interested in utilizing their theology in that way. They, you know, just having a Christian state is not a theocracy. A theocracy requires that you have a clergy class that is that is uh, ruling over the government, right? So the church would literally have to be synonymous with with the government and rule it, and you'd have to have. Um, a pope or something as as your president. This would be a theocracy. The, no one, no one is advocating for that that I know of. No one. So, and no one in the founding era did either. Uh, this would be a confusion of the of the two powers. So the the calling it a theocracy, I mean, it's a scare tactic, but it's it's not descriptive at all. So they're already dishonest in their approach to, uh, you know, the entire game. Provide just a little bit more about that distinction between uh, a theocracy and having a clergy actually operate as a ruling class over the state uh, versus just this um, church establishment that you referred to earlier. Yeah, so it, you know, in a church establishment where you have a uh, in the to keep it clean, the most the most basic way you'd have one church or denomination that is recognized by the government as the the official. You know, religion of, of the state doesn't mean you don't have tolerance as well, but you have this official recognition. So there's state support for um, this particular church, right, whether through taxes or, or what have you. And also the church um, provides, you know, assistance to the the magistrate in the sense they provide moral teaching and these things that are that can then undergird law. Um, but th- this is not to usurp the, the role of the civil power or the magistrate who has a, as our confessions recognize, a duty a religious duty to his people and to protect the church and the true religion and the gospel. But at the same time, he doesn't promulgate doctrine. He doesn't uh, usurp the role of the church in their legislative competency. So you can have an establishment without either of the two powers being confused um, and also without the magistrate becoming uh, head of the church or the church becoming head of the civil government. Um, So the confusion uh, comes in with something like theocracy where you have one of the one of the powers uh, exceeding their legislative competency and doing things that they're that they're not supposed to do, um, and so the but of course theocracy sounds scary, and this is usually how you refer how people refer to uh, Puritan New England as being a theocracy, 
Um, but Puritan New England had laws saying clergy could never hold office simultaneously with an office in the church. So it's a law against theocracy. It's impossible um, to do. So um, it's just not legit. We've never had theocracy in this country, and nor is, is anyone, to my knowledge, that's in the, the kind of groups they're attacking, advocating for such. So even to you know to comprehend the distinction, people need to be reminded maybe of something like Kuiper's three spheres, church, state, and family. And in the church, I'm a pastor in the church, and what you're saying is theocracy would require that I operate as an official in the state and no one's advocating for that. There would still be, uh, you know, if we, if you were elected, uh, which I think would be a wonderful thing, as I mentioned, I think you'd be elected Lord Protector of the United <laughs> States. Um, you, um, that would be, you would have state duties. I would have church duties. And um, no one wants to, no one wants to um, muddy those waters. So, yeah, it's a, it's a division of division of labor, I think, would be, you know, the way the magisterial magisterial reformers would kind of think of it. And uh, you need to be focused on on those duties. So it's, you can't do both at the same. You could be a pastor that then becomes a magistrate and you no longer perform your pastoral duties or something like that. But the you can't do both at the same time would be the principle. Um, and and I, th- I think that's more or less the, the the gist. But of course, if you already have the premise that never shall the twain meet religion and government or whatever, then any kind of um, you know, interaction starts to look a lot like theocracy to them. And it looks like theocracy to meet the press, uh, given what's going on out here in Moscow. We see this in clip two. Let's look at this one. Decision overturning Roe versus Wade has religious overtones. It has been cheered on by conservatives on religious grounds. And in fact, it's actually led some liberals to look to the religious freedom restoration laws, many of them vigorously opposed over the last decade, to challenge, to use these laws as an attempt to challenge these statewide abortion bans that are being passed around this country. So as a country, we are entering unknown territory. What is next? Where is this movement heading? My colleague, NBC News correspondent Ann Thompson, traveled to Moscow, Idaho. It's a blue enclave, small blue enclave, and an otherwise ruby red state that's grappling, that has been grappling for years with questions about the role religion should play in the public square and everyday life. In northern Idaho's dunes of grains and grass, a battle without bullets over the direction of a town. I believe that what's happening in Moscow is a microcosm of what's happening all across the country that started here maybe 10 or 15 years earlier than what's happening across the country. And that is? Um, Well, just the radical division. I don't think our nation has been this divided since 1859. It's divided and it's inflamed. And uh, that whole process, I think, began to be visible here a decade or a decade and a half before it became radically visible in the nation as a whole. So there's a couple things in that clip. There's first Chuck opening by saying that abortion has been um, addressed on religious grounds. And as you just established, well, of course it has been, and it ought to be. And that's not a theocracy. Um, that's, uh, that's the simple point that uh, this is an inescapable concept. You're going to have religion informing the ethics of your particular society. And the fact that it's doing so is not something to be lamented. Um, and to pretend that you're going to have some kind of genuine secularism that's going to be able to inform your culture, your civil life, your ethics, um, that's simply a lie. Underneath that secularism, you're going to find, you're going to find various idols. And, and then, it, then um, you know, Pastor Doug here sets up this division that exists in Moscow and says this is a microcosm of what's going on in the broader um, nation. We see that now. I think there's Christians far and wide all across America. That's why you're having this Christian nationalism push. Christians far and wide that can see the ethical division. We had Black Lives Matter riots. We had the COVID tyranny and lockdowns. And and they see that, but they might not see um, the religious... um, impulse that's informing this particular division. You've written a lot about this against public atheism is one of your uh, recent articles. Uh, Just address that topic. Yes, there is the divide. Um, Yes, people are seeing it. But what role does religion have to play in all of this? Yeah, so I think, you know, that this, uh, as I said in that article that you referenced, it's a typical 
sort of liberal posture. And this would this would include Christians who are genuine Christians and um, you know believe the Bible and all that. Um, but it's a public posture towards uh, religion in the in the public square that I call public atheism, which is just the idea that you live as if there's no God in your socio-religious or socio-political context, right? So you, at home, you do believe there's one and you worship him, but when you step out the door, um, now you have to live as if he's not there. You know, this this is, uh, you know, Romans 1 behavior uh, at, at root. Um, so you're suppressing the knowledge and not make it, not allowing it to be actionable in, in the rest of your life. And I think this is, um, at least in greater evangelicalism, it's probably the predominant mood or has been um, for so many people. And this is why politics, um, their political theory out of someone like David French or, um, you know, sort of the third wayest uh, Keller and these guys, it, it becomes, as, as my friend James Wood has pointed out, very evangelistic. That's all they kind of have. And so they're inherently afraid of, of power or think all power is, is bad um, and will point out the dangers of power being misused, even though that's inherent in the definition. It's like people, you know, pointing out the that guns can kill people. And it's like, well, yeah, but obviously that's it. But it's so it's the question is who's wielding it. Um, it's the same thing with political power, but they they have this sort of uh, def- defensive crouch or maybe, a, you know, so it's a timid crouch about uh, the, the use of political power and, the, and it should be this very neutral public square where no one, is, we're all playing by the same rules or whatever they want to say. Um, and this is supposed to solve, you know, this, this dream they have, this nightmare they have about what medieval Europe was like. In fact, they don't ever read anything about medieval Europe, but they've got this enlightenment myth about the dark ages and, the worst thing that could ever happen is for religion to start mattering to people again in public because that leads to violence because everything's so peaceful right now. So we wouldn't, we certainly wouldn't want to do that. But <laughs> liberalism and secularism promise peace because religion is fanaticism and it really shouldn't matter except in your prayer closet. But what we find out, as you've already alluded to, is something will fill that void. There's going to be, uh, to, to maintain the pejorative, there's going to be fanaticism things that are animating people beyond the the bare kind of bones of, of, you know, political policy of like the tax code or something like that. The reason people come out to vote, the reason people show up to riot are always inherently moral reasons, because these are actually the things that matter the most to moral beings. And we care about what the central civic cult is going to be in our societies that we rally around together, because we need to be able to be understand each other and be dedicated to the same final ends. Otherwise, there there's complete chaos. So it's something worth fighting over, and even even liberals recognize this. They just do it through their substitutes. Um, and so I think that's you know it's it's a total. But as you said, what you have to do as a liberal, as a secularist, is pretend that you're not doing that. And so we have all these great phrases that you can, uh, you know, this great lexicon that uh, maintains to the bitter end that no 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 we don't do that. We're above that. We've we've uh, you know transcended the transcendent. And we no longer need to have that in the public square. So we are neutral and democracy is about, you know, sharing or whatever they, they say later that we'll get to. Um, and that's all just not true on the ground as, as for the examples you've already already mentioned demonstrate that. Um, and the fact that they are so actually exercised by a competitor religion in Moscow or wherever, there's, there's plenty of places I'm sure that are like Moscow that just don't have quite the... Uh, it's not as coherent or or sort of um, it's not being orchestrated in the same way and you don't have the same personalities leading it. But I imagine there's many locales you could find in America where the, the church has um, a significant presence. Most people are Christians. Most people in public office are Christians. And it's still vestiges of, you know, whatever's left of the Bible Belt that Russell Moore hasn't hasn't destroyed or Gavin Ortland or whoever was uh, against that. So, you know, they, but they pick on on Moscow because it's 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 outward facing it's letting everyone know this is what we're doing and it's objectionable to them because it's competition yeah i'll give you a brief word on moscow and then i want to consider this next clip that you mentioned where uh, one of the panelists speak of this christian nationalism that they're addressing as a as a power trip and uh democracy of course is all about sharing so there's there's a lot to explore there but since you mentioned the moscow thing and you know they come out here and they see what's going on growing up in the southeast i grew up in a in a christian 
um, area, you know, and went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So you have this Bible Belt that's still there, but it's eroding, right? It's 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 being conquered daily, and people are starting to feel that out here in the Northwest. You don't have that hist- you know, that history. You don't have that Bible Belt kind of thing. So if you hold to the same convictions, like we believe the Bible. Um, well, that pops out here in the Northwest, and it pops when you live in a very small town that has a major university in it, and you're 10 minutes away from another town that has a major D1 university in it. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's the dynamics that are going on out here. There's certainly a robust Christianity. There's a all of Christ for all of life going on. Um, and when that meets the Northwest in a college town, you have the kind of things that are that are coming up. But I, I enjoyed watching one of the tweets from Meet the Press that said, you know, Pastor Doug in this church believes that um, wives should submit to their husbands, and they believe that homosexual practice is a choice that's a sinful one. And <laughs> like every retweet was like, oh, you found Christians being right, Christians. Right. Uh, oh, people have yeah, held- strange. Yeah, they've held this for 2,000 years. So um, it's beautiful to see God's actually creating that line so um, Christians far and wide across the nation can look and go, oh my goodness, I, I see what's happening here. I'm going to be a part of, I'm going to be sent off to the gulag too. Uh, this isn't really some kind of quirky thing that's happening out in the Northwest with a particular community. These are brothers and sisters in Christ that believe the same truths, same Bible, same salvation, same Christ that I do. So um, let's consider this next clip where um, one of the panelists talk about this uh, power issue that's going on with this Christian community or this Christian nationalism uh, contrasted with democracy and how generous it is to all people. Christian nationalism, and, and Anthea brought this up earlier, is, is about power. And when we think of that in terms of a democracy and a functioning democracy, um, it's about sharing power and playing by the same rules. And so with Christian nationalism, we find over and over that if it comes down to democracy or power, they're going to choose power every time. And mm. so this idea of, of a country uh, for the people, by the people, it's really a country for a particular people, by a particular mm-hmm. people. And so for those in the GOP, um, trying to figure out, are we really about democracy, where we're going to play by the same rules yeah. or not? And um, that's the big question I think at stake. Okay, there's a lot to sort out in that time, and you really need to untangle that knot. You have uh, democracy on this side, and you have uh, Christian nationalism that's all about power on this side. You also have democracy that's playing by the same rules, and then you have uh, you know uh, Christian nationalism, which obviously is is not playing by the same rules. Can you make some sense of what we just heard? Yeah, so I mean, you could you could take it from the top with the the kind of predictable objection that. Um, he says he presumes we live in a democracy, and I would say says says who? Um, because one of their objections, if I say that uh, you know America was founded or, or at the founding it was a Christian nation, they're going to say, well, where's that in the Constitution, um, right? And where's where's God in the Constitution? I would say, right, okay, where's democracy in the Constitution? It's, it's not there. So what do you have to do? You have to look at look at the structure of the at the time. You have to look at. Uh, what's undergirding everything. And there you you don't find democracy, but you do find Christianity. So the, these are some other historical problems for them. You know, we, w- we would say that at the founding, it's it's a mixed regime. There is a totally a democratic element, but there's also an aristocratic and indeed an executive or even monarchical one. Um, and we've seen even the monarchical one uh, be, be stronger than others at various points, whether, you know, most recently FDR would be kind of your your last but m- moving on so this this idea you know d- democracy is again one of those words that you use as a liberal to to push your to actually uh, get your own power democracy citing democracy in this way is about asserting power and about uh, maintaining the regime rhetoric um, but even if we we take andrew here on his on his own terms the idea that democracy is by definition, antithetical to power. These are the two choices set up. This is the binary. It's power or democracy, and democracy is about sharing power, I suppose. And power is just is just power. I mean, these are not. This is apples and oranges. But power is just power, I guess. For, for Andrew, this is strange because democracy is a form of government, which presumes the operation of power, and is a particular way of organizing power. But it's not antithetical to power. Um, and I would also say democracy is not about sharing, because actually in democracy, you set up 
uh, quite a bit of, of competition. Elections are about gaining power. And then when you gain power, you do the things you want to do that your constituency puts you in in power for. Um, and that's that's the whole ballgame. I mean, this is what Joe Biden is, is doing now. Every president comes in, they throw out all the executive orders of the last president, and they for a while, you know, the first couple of years may have control of Congress or a year up to the to the midterms, and they try to get as much done as they can because they have power. So it's just a way of democracy is just a means through which power is allocated, but it's not antithetical to power. So setting up this way is very disingenuous. It makes no sense to me. It's it's a sort of nonsensical line he has. Um, but of course, he's insinuating that, you know, people who are not for democracy, because you can always set this up, and ask people, um, do we live in a democracy? And they might they, they might have some of the questions I just had. But should we? And the, the appropriate answer for liberals always say, yes, democracy, good. Democracy is why we, um, we, in fact, we exercise imperialism for the sake of democracy. We go take over countries for democracy to force it upon them, even though they didn't choose it. Um, so democracy is very demanding that way. Everyone needs to have it, um, but it, but also all about sharing and being nice. And so, you know, everyone thinks we should live in democracy because it's the, it's the right answer, um, because it's good, just like neutrality, good just like liberalism, good. Um, so all these things, so you have to kind of say this in response to the theocrats, right? Because they, they're they bad. And so they just want power, they're ruthless. They, um, I, I suppose it means we're disingenuous and we just, and we don't care about other people um, or their well-being is, is the whole setup. So you just can't fall into this, uh, you know, this sort of game that's being played. You can't play by the the rules and the terms that are, that we're, they try to force us into. Yeah, the the whole setup here, we've already established that God is separated from government. That was what Chuck pointed out in the very beginning. You know, we can't have that kind of thing. So you have this government operating uh, apart from God, apart from his authority, apart from his revelation. And then you bring in the idea of democracy over against uh, Christian nationalism, which is actually going to look to the Christian God. So you, democracy is something that exists um, all by the people. It's, it's, it's a government by the people for the people. And it doesn't look to the heavens for any kind of um, information about how we are to order ourselves and conduct ourselves in civil society. That's that's what's being presented here. Um, the problem is, like, okay, well, where do your ideas come from? Like, what you know, what's going? You're still going to have a power structure. You're still going to have a god of that system. You're just saying we don't want it to be uh, the god of the Bible. And as you pointed out earlier, this is all over. I mean, God is engraved on our buildings. God's name is written on our money. Everywhere you look, we are one nation under God. He's all throughout our songs. Um, you talk about what's rising, you know, a rising theocracy. What's rising is this uh, wild secularism that is trying to actually cut the tie from the heavens um, when it comes to how we're going to order our society, how we're going to live as a nation. Yeah, there, there's two things, you know, in a clip. It's not just Andrew Whitehead. He's very representative. That's why he's on the panel. He's being a good representative of, of the uh, what's acceptable. The um, you know, if you look at the the scope of history, everything that they're they're advocating here um, is really really new. So up until yesterday, I mean, democracy was the dumbest idea in the world. No one liked it and it thought it would uh, end you know in pure chaos. Uh, you know, Munster uh, with with the Anabaptists is a really good example of like pure democracy and sort of a communist democracy, weird, weird stuff. And it, it, it erupts in, you know, pure terror. And so this idea of like, you know, an actual democracy where you basically crowdsource policy or whatever is is really, really dumb. Every every statesman used to think so. The founders thought so. The only references to democracy in something like the Federalist Paper are in the negative. I mean, you can't just have this democracy. So they've forgotten the the entire structure of our government is not just that you have a democratic element, but it's not not a pure democracy because that would be bad. Um, the other thing he mentions, though, along with this, you know, by the people for the people thing, where you again you just apparently men are never ruled; they just kind of voice their opinions, and their opinions are are uh, actualized by their their lackeys that they've elected, which is you know you could call that an exercise of certain kind of power. But the 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 you know. When he says that's not what power does, the theocrats don't want by the people for the people. They want a particular people or by a particular people for a particular people. Well, all you've just described is is nationhood. I mean, that's not a really interesting point to make. Of, of course, it's not 
just everyone because the rest of us aren't global citizens. We think of ourselves as being in a actual place, knowing actual people. And so this idea that it's scandalous that a government or that a, a political system would would serve a particular definable you know group of people, um, that's very strange. I mean, this is not good political thought. It's like saying, I mean, that you could the, the church analogy is easy. A pastor has to know, know who his flock is so he knows who to serve. And if a government doesn't know who its people are, it will not know how to serve them well. And query whether we you know see this in, in the American regime itself. It seems that we are. Um, increasingly good at serving people who are not citizens, whether that's in Eastern Europe or or the Middle East, and really, really bad at serving, uh, you know, people who are actually citizens, citizens, whether that's, you know, people hooked on fentanyl or whatever. So, you know, the the, the logic here, the liberal logic that, that Andrew Whitehead is very expertly parroting um, and, and showing his, uh, you know, regime bona fides, he belongs, he's saying the right stuff, um, it, it's it's actually very you know it's a it's a troubling thing it's new it's innovative even though they're pretending theocracy is on the rise this is the innovation it's actually theirs that is is new their approach to to human life and to to government and politics and uh it the the proof is in the pudding it's not going well so people are no wonder people are looking for other answers to uh to the sort of soulless secular existence they've imposed on us yeah, the line about uh, government, you know, for a particular people and not for all people, um, you know, your position is excluding certain people. It seems to run right along the lines of this. Uh, you can't legislate morality idea. It's like, well, no, that's what law does. Like all law legislates morality and all law, all standards, all government is going to say certain things are out of bounds. These things are out of bounds. Um, so that was that was asked again on the and that's actually in the piece that Meet the Press did, they, um, Doug's interviewer asked, you know, what about homosexuality? And he said, do you mean marriage? And she said, yes. And he says, well, no, there wouldn't be marriage. There wouldn't be homosexual marriage in a Christian town. Um, so this is the way, you know, and she said, even though it's the law of the land, they made a very good point about, well, as Roe was. Um, so these things, obviously Roe going down, um, as Chuck mentioned at the very beginning, absolutely has to do with religion, has to do with God who, who exists, who says um, that we ought not to murder. And the same, the same principles would be applied uh, to marriage. But posing it as, well, democracy is just kind of for all people and there's nothing ex- exclusionary about it. Well, no, this is just what government is, what law is. It's going to regulate um, the community. It's going to regulate the ethics of that particular community. Yeah, the... the- the pedagogical effect, not just in the in the you know the Calvinist sense, but that law is a teacher, you know, is a, is a very classical idea and, and something we used to understand. Actually, something the liberals do understand, even if they don't don't say so. I mean, this is really the effect of something like Obergefell. I mean, there there was not a, a lot of implementation that was necessary after Obergefell to to make this um, you know kind of actionable or, or to to have it policeable. Um, what it does is just teach people what's appropriate, what's what's legal and good, and people kind of fall in line. I mean, we laws against theft of property, we do have to enforce them, but think about how often we don't have to enforce them. What it does, and what we hope it does, is is tell people that this is wrong because it's codified in law. If it's codified in law, I know it's wrong, and I'm, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a lawbreaker. Um, and, and it's it's not good for us. And we the, the law is very effective this way. I mean, this is something the Marxists actually knew very well and, and were correct about. And so, um, you know, it, it, the, the status quo, the legal status quo, is, as Doug was pointing out, is not as set in stone as everyone pretends it is. Um, but we also have to have to recognize that, you know, the laws, even bad ones that we want to overturn, they are still teaching us all the time. And you see this in something like religious liberty jurisprudence, um, where, where most Baptists today operate basically with a theory of religious liberty that's Supreme Court dicta. And they've just kind of baptized it and keep chanting it all the time. And that's sufficient for them. But it's it has a moral force because it's it's been codified in law. And so these things, even when you don't have to enforce them or police them, they're extremely powerful. Um, and it, you can see it in that woman's question. Her her rebuttal to Doug Wilson when he, she asked about gay marriage is simply, well, it's, it's the law, though. How could you possibly say that? 
So you see the the power and effect of these things, and that's why Christians have to be more interested in that aspect of, of law and politics, of the, the sort of soft power it provides is just as important as, as the hard coercive power it does. Uh, the um, the positioning of this panel seemed to come back again and again to the idea of well all people and uh, there's a there's a legal component an exclusionary component to this Christian nationalism position and then there's not to our position democracy is for all people um, and that even came out in the Christianity that was addressed so uh, one of the one of the panelists actually commented on the way Jesus conducted his very own ministry and was trying to set that at odds um, with any with this Christian nationalism that is now on the rise let's consider this clip by the way going back to Christianity and Ann, maybe you could shed some light on this but Christianity I mean Jesus Christ invited people to follow never it, it was never an imposition right because that... <laughs> let's put it like that he did not twist their arm you could come or not you know you want to follow this guy you don't yeah. that's, that's all it is and, and the, <laughs> so, the, they really like that like all the panelists really light up when um, this lady says this is what Christianity is about you could um you know you can follow you want to follow this guy or not you know uh, that that's all that it is as if there is not um, a every knee shall bow every tongue um, shall confess that Jesus is Lord what is this signaling about the kind of the um, the worldview that's undergirding the way they're thinking about the political realities they're discussing I mean, a couple of things I'd love to ask uh, the, the woman who said that I forget her name. Um, I would I would bet money she doesn't believe in the resurrection, because if you believe in the resurrection, that doesn't work anymore because Christ is victorious. And he's, he's, of course, returning again and his kingdom is already inaugurated and he's you know build, building um places in heaven for us and he's going and every knee will bow as, as so you know i bet she doesn't believe in the resurrection i bet it's at the moral jesus that's the, the meek and the mild only and of course we would say yes he does in, invite people to follow him and um you know the the reason that's being cited is this is the sleight of hand this unspoken um you know they're not showing showing the math but what they're doing is saying theocracy christian state whatever they want to call it where Christ is recognized by the powers, by civil powers, um, and Christian teaching uh, from Scripture is integrated into law where appropriate, so on and so forth. What that is is really coerced faith, right? As if as if this is what a Christian nation would do. So we're going to frog march people into church and point, put gun to people's heads and make them, you know, say Christ is Lord, um, and then actually somehow believe it. And we, of course, in any good Christian Orthodox teaching, no one believes that. We know faith can, genuine faith cannot be coerced and we're not interested in doing so. We are interested in in, in the political world and social, social order terms. We're interested in, in outward behavior that is moral and peaceable. And even then, of course, someone like Thomas Aquinas recognizes you cannot police every single sin out of existence. That's just impossible to do. We accept that, we're realist about it. Um, so the sleight of hand there is to say, oh, real Christians wouldn't want to coerce people into faith. And what they're saying is that's what we're wanting to do. But it's, of course, not what we're wanting to do. No one is no one is saying that either, just like no one is saying that clergy should rule the state. Um, so these are these are subtle things that, you know, they they do that's very disingenuous and unfair. They're not actually debating us. They're not actually taking it seriously. You notice throughout the entire special, this entire episode, Moscow, Doug Wilson, is simultaneously scary. It's terrifying, but also irrelevant and has no power. And this is never going to happen. And it's a joke. So they oscillate in the schizophrenic way between this is hilarious and a joke. It's also terrifying. And they just go back and forth. And it's like you have to pick one. It has to be one or the other. Things that are a joke to me are not usually scary because they can't hurt me. Um, and so, you know, you have these kinds of quips like this of like, oh, it's it's so hilarious that they they want to uh, coerce people into into faith and this is a big joke they're all laughing about it but but then why are you doing the, the special you know see so they know something is there and some but they've got to um caricature it they've got to make fun of it and they've got to misrepresent it and so that you know that kind of thing is is uh is interesting it's also revealing um for the the general pathology that's undergirding um all of their their rhetoric here and approach to the topic 
Yeah, your analysis of the state end of this is really good. We're not, no one's trying to, from the state vantage point, coerce faith um, in order to be a citizen or whatever. That's not what's going on. The pastor in me, from the church side of things, um, listens to that lady and says, this is a gift from God that, that Meet the Press did this. And my hope is that people would see the distinction in worldview between that panel and what's going on here in Moscow. One of the things that makes people nervous is that um, the Moscow community is living an ordered life. There's a well-ordered life that's forming. There's a well-ordered community that's forming, and it's based off of the Word of God. It's actually based off of the God who is, the Creator who is. And they feel that form. They feel that structure coming down, and they're much like the kings in, in Psalm 2, right? These, these heathen kings who say, let us burst his bonds apart, cast away his cords from us. They don't, they don't like the form that's coming. You know, they take a shot at patriarchy. Again, the wives submit to your husbands is just in the Bible. They, but it's the order that that is beginning to make them uncomfortable, and the Christianity that was, you know, the false Christianity that was just um, pronounced by this lady is well, you know, Jesus, you can come to Jesus if you want to, and if not, no big deal. Uh, well, is that really the Christian faith? If you if you don't call Jesus Lord and trust Him, uh, what will happen to you? Um, well, you, of course, will be condemned by God. You, you will still be in your sin. And Christians love you and don't want that for you. We, we want you to be saved. We, that's, why we, that's why we're doing this whole thing. We want the good news of Christ to be made known. We want people to repent of their sin and call upon the name of the Lord. So to present Christ as if he's a take it or leave it, and, you know, hey, it worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. But if it doesn't, you know, if, that, if this isn't your particular taste, don't worry about it. Um, that's really the ideology that's undergirding the particular democracy that they're talking about, the secular democracy, um, where all people are included um, regardless, again, which is a lie on its face. That's not how actually they're living, but that's what they're promoting. And the Christianity that they're promoting, or at least this one woman uh, was promoting, is the same kind of thing. Well, it's a take it or leave it kind of you'll be okay um, whether you bow to the Lord of Lords or not. And so you can see, you can start to see the faith here that's undergirding their particular vision of how society ought to be ordered. Um, and that's an enlightening thing for all Christians to see. Okay, I'm starting to see there's a connection between one's religion, one's worldview, and what kind of civil um, government they're going to establish. Yeah, I mean, they just certainly treat Jesus like he's a, uh, you know, just one option on the buffet. And if it gives you sort of personal fulfillment and and the ability to make meaning in your life or whatever you want to say, then then go for it. But certainly don't impose, um, you know, that on, on the rest of us because the buffet is here. We have lots of choices. And it's this sort of uh, voluntarism that un, that obviously goes hand in hand with their, their heavily purely democratic leanings. Um, that is, you know, this is endemic in, in evangelicalism as well. So many people grow up in non-denominational or, or, uh, very loosely uh, loose denominations, I, I guess I would say, with no real confessional tradition, no catechesis. They grow up outside of a tradition, basically. They grow up in mere Christendom, um, if that. And this is something that if, if you read the historian Robert Handy talks about um, when when establishments in America, you know, finally kind of dissipate, you move into the post-Great Awakenings, you move into this purely voluntarist sort of um, ethos in, in Christianity. And so the battle becomes sort of over jockeying just for culture, because that's the only mechanism of control anymore. You no longer have any church, any particular church to look to. You have all these options too, all these denominations, all these societies, you know, set up for like every kind of uh, possible uh, reason, you know, for every cause. And it just becomes completely chaotic, but it's this voluntarist spirit that then runs through all of it. And it's just choice after choice after choice for your own fulfillment. And uh, that's still with us now. And that's that's a result of uh, destroying any kind of institutional central um, loci that can that can provide moral teaching and um, and also uh discipleship, you know, for those that, that are, are true believers and everything. Um, so this is this is somewhat predictable and somewhat very American. It's just extremely, extremely low church, um, no pressure, you know, seeker, you could even call that seeker sensitive or something like that. I mean, there's the things that we as Christians have, are guilty of perpetuating, is my point of we, we've kind of joined in doing it this way and have run church this way as well. And somewhere like 
uh, Moscow, where you have um, a particular church and people being formed by that in those particular communities, and um, they, they, it's not pure choice all the time. Um, that's that's threatening to the choice because the only value is the choice and the consent. All legitimacy in, de- in a democracy like they want is through the options and then the consent, and that's the voice of the people. Yeah. It is quite threatening to them, and you can you can kind of sense the underlying fear, concern about what's going on. And it, we have a last clip here, and it's interesting that they project that fear onto uh, onto the, this particular community out here in Moscow, and they project that fear onto the whole Christian nationalism. Um, um, altogether considered throughout the nation. So let's consider this last clip. At the exact same time, those that are religious are almost becoming more fundamentalists. Right. But uh, almost out of fear of this growing secularization. And that's, that's what I think it gets to, is yeah. that there is a great deal of fear. And if you look at the issues that they grab onto, the issue of abortion, the issue of same-sex marriage, opposing same-sex marriage, the issue of gender identity, all of those are driven by fear. Mm -hmm. And I asked Pastor Wilson that. I said, America is becoming less Christian. Fewer Americans want to be part of organized religion. And he just sees that as as a further challenge. He believes he can change minds. So what she says here is, um, well, it's contradictory on its face because in the first place there's fear going on, and then she refers to Pastor Wilson, who uh, everyone who knows Pastor Wilson knows that there's no, <laughs> there's no fear uh, going on there. And in the clips, you can tell there's no fear. There's uh, there's um, some Chestertonian cheerfulness going on uh, in the ministry that's going on out here. But she says, hey, uh, you know, Christianity's not looking good in the States. And the response is, well, that's that's great. We're not that's not causing us to run in, in a corner. Um, that's actually saying, like, well, we're we believe that there is a God who actually transforms people, who actually causes dry bones to live. So um, what and this is uh, as this this piece will be very public. You will find a strand of Christianity that does have that fear. People that aren't trusting God, they are trusting man. Uh, they want good neighbors. They're not. They don't understand what's going on. Um, this is why one of the things is really needed is a sense that no, God is in heaven and He does all that He pleases, and He has a particular plan for this world. He actually brings that plan to pass. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who's the second Adam, who's constituted a new humanity. There's people that are forgiven of sins, that um, God's word will triumph, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That whole vision um, causes Christians to be quite cheerful, quite confident in the Lord, um, and actually not the ones uh, who are fearful. And who actually, when, when you look at the whole clip from, from NBC here, you can see where the fear is, but it doesn't seem to be on the side of the Christians. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, we're not the ones. Did did Canon Press do a a special on the rise of Chuck Todd or anything like that to to freak out about? I mean, so obviously this is the, the fear. They're they're projecting there as they often do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the one thing I would say, at least at least for myself, this is how I, I view it. I mean, these things when we talk about our social order and um the how this should be organized what should be the central moral vision in informing our our activity together our life together um you know this is a matter of duty i don't think i'm going to usher in the eschaton by any particular nor is that my job to do this because this is in god's providence that'll occur when he's ready for it um too but in the meantime i do have duties on earth and those are duties to family those are duties to your church. Those are duties to your nation. And you would be derelict in that duty if you just let it, uh, you know, turn into a dumpster fire when you have the ability to maybe reform it or to um, to live, to, to walk humbly, live justly. I mean, these these are very basic Christian principles. I don't know why it shocks them. And it's, it's weird that it shocked them that there's a bunch of Christians in Moscow. And I think Wilson puts this this way. They're trying to uh, evangelize people. I don't know why that was shocking. This is what the, what they're doing there. They are trying to turn people into Christians, which I thought is what Christians do. Um, and the, and having an interest in your community, um, they certainly do this. They think if something is is harmful, usually to to other people, you know, they're advocating their abortion, uh, gender, you know, w- whatever else. These are these are things they're saying are being taken away from other people, and they're really potentially by all of us. 
and they're really concerned about maintaining them. So they're acting on behalf of others because they they're seeking their good in their own in their own twisted way. They're seeking the good of those people, which is basically unalloyed an unalloyed choice on all fronts. And we're doing the same thing. We're saying no; those things are actually not good for people. And so we're going to actually seek the good of our our community in the way that we understand it, which we have to know is true. Um, this is just what you do in politics. I'm, I'm again not really sure why it's so controversial, other than that it's seen as a threat and competition to their own power, um, and they also find this extremely foreign because they've fully imbibed uh, a secular worldview or whatever you want to call it, um, and this is also a threat to that right as well. Yeah, the lines are clearly drawn, and you know it was great to see NBC through this Meet the Press. Uh, special actually um, give voice to Christians who are living like Christians in the world and are uh, seeking the manifestation of that Christianity in their town. Uh, it's a glorious thing out here in Moscow, and I think um, it's it's something that many Christians far and wide across America really are wanting to see happen in their own towns where they live. Uh, that divide politically is clearly seen with the Christian nationalism uh, that's going on versus a, a secular vision and um, the form of democracy that flows from that particular secular vision. So you can see uh, the Lordship of Christ manifesting itself here in this conversation. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beneficial thing to take a look at this particular panel as they try to understand Christianity. Uh, surely we're trying to preach Christ because he is the light, he's the truth, he's the one that's going to actually open up eyes so they can see what we're talking about. So, Tommy, thanks for joining me. Uh, you've written prolifically on all of this, so I'd point people to American Reformer. Is that the primary place where they can go right now to gather some yeah, of your that's, writing? that's right. I think the, the uh, public atheism one was at American Conservative, again, another American. Uh, but the rest of the, most of what you, you're referring to is at American Reformer. So that's the, the best place I've got. I've uh, been writing a lot for them. Very good. Well, thanks again for joining me today. All right. Thanks, man. As you know, there are several good books on Canon Plus, and one of my favorite books on Canon Plus is John Knox's Stalwart Courage by Doug Wilson. We are in a time where we need a whole lot of Knox. Some people objected to the way that he ministered, and Doug Wilson does a wonderful job of defending him and commending him as a great reformer. He loved the truth and he loved the grace and mercy that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to listen to this book on Canon Plus and you have the opportunity to get started for only 99 cents. All you need to do is use promo code JARED99.